Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great honor of talking. Uh, with Joseph Henrik, uh, the author of well, his new book, uh, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Uh, welcome, Joe. Good to be with you. Yeah, so I I always like guests to introduce themselves because I find that it, it just works better. So how, how would you describe yourself to our uh, listeners? Sure. So I'm currently a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard. And what I do is I apply evolutionary theory to understand human behavior, human nature, and psychology. And as part of that, one of my main lines of research is thinking about humans as a cultural species. So more than any other animal, we've acquired the ability to learn from other members of our social group. And this has given rise to a kind of second system of inheritance, cultural inheritance, that then interacts with our genetic evolution. So a lot of my work is thinking about how the interaction with genes and culture has played out over long periods of time. Okay, you, your book, I've assigned to students parts of your earlier book, The Secret of Our Success. And I, I, felt, I felt as I was reading this, I've, I've read this new one like three or four times now, and I'm teaching on it this semester. And it's a lot of fun to teach on, by the way, but it, I feel like they, people really need to read your first book 
or at least parts of it as a, a prologue, really understanding. Uh, I mean, do you think that's a problem or do you think most of the material gets covered enough early on that uh, people will understand um, the enormity of your arguments, <laughs> put it that way? Well, that, I mean, uh, actually, the original design, the first proposal that I wrote and sold, the part one was the secret of our success. And part two was really the weirdest people in the world. And then what happened is by the time I finished part one, it was clear it had to be its own book. So it kind of got spun off and sold separately. Uh, and then I was able to summarize that in just in the second chapter of the book. So the second chapter is my effort to introduce readers to really the secret of our success. But of course, it's one chapter representing a whole book. So uh, necessarily has to summarize and compress and skip stuff. So yeah, I mean, ideally it's a two book set, but you know, I tried to write it so it could more or less freestand. But if you want the whole package, you gotta read both. <laughs> yeah, you really, really do. And I think for, in terms of my students, I know that a lot of them said that the, the sort of the thought experiment that for a lot of them provided that aha moment where they understood, okay, this is what he's doing. This is what he is. It's from the secret of our success where you, you give that comparison and you say, if you had a troop of rhesus monkeys and you had a, you know, a certain amount of like humans and rhesus and you just like transplant them and put them like a reality TV show or some sort of horrible survivor experiment. You put them in a tropical location that neither of, uh, neither of them are um, from there. And so they have to figure out what's poisonous, what's edible, what things can be used as tools, shelter, all these different things. And you even say, you know what, I'll throw in clothes for the humans <laughs> just to give them like a little, <laughs> a little bit of a, like help i'm not going to put them naked and alone and afraid you know totally and you said that basically if you're a betting man uh smart money's on the monkeys that they'll actually and this is because so much of our success as a species is linked to culture and to this like big mass of of knowledge about the environment that has been uh, gained through trial and effort learning um and all these things so it, that that just seems really central to to your argument right because that yeah and and part of the idea that comes out of that is that we become so reliant on learning from others that it's kind of you know our brains expanded and our large brains are really for acquiring storing and organizing information that we get from others so we're kind of addicted to culture in the sense that we can't perform some of the basic functions that other species can do like finding food or dealing with injuries or traveling without relying on the products of culture, whether that's directions or know-how or technologies. So it's really very much a part of us. And I even provide examples like cooking and, and long distance running where to really make it work, there's kind of this, you need both cultural and genetic elements, which have co-evolved together to give us a kind of package. But without certain cultural elements, the genetic package doesn't even work. So even some parts of our gene are, you know, our genetic adaptations are culturally dependent. Yeah, I mean, the argument that I normally get from, especially from science students, is they say, well, okay, if, if you're going to take um, evolutionary biology, if that evolutionary theory is going to be your template, and which of course it should be, it's the unifying theory of the, so, but if you're going to take that as your template, people usually think, well, genetics is the royal road to understanding how that works. And, and that, and so when you bring in culture, 
I think it, for some people, at least, at least initially, it's kind of a, a curveball. I think, wait a minute. I, yeah, it's usually it's the social scientists who are saying, well, it's all environmental factors and culture and learning and society. That's, that's sort of uh, everything or the most important things. And then generally speaking, the science people are saying, no, no, it's actually genetics determines most of this. And, and, and you come along and you're, you know, perhaps making, making a, a fight with both groups to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need a, a rich theory of human nature. And to understand that, we have to have, understand genetic evolution. But in our case, a lot of our genetic evolution has been shaped by cultural evolution. So you need to understand the interactions between those. And uh, I think while it's probably the case that, that the view that you know, genes kind of dominate, that comes out of you know, the Richard Dawkins tradition or something like that, uh, you know, it can, you know, the contemporary arguments, uh, people studying whales and dolphins or birds or stuff, take gene culture co-evolution very seriously. So culturally transmitted song traditions, for example, in birds or uh, sea mammals may drive all kinds of aspects of genetic evolution. And there's a lot of work on that in other species. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so that's really become a part of the debate now. But interestingly, a lot of that comes out of the original human work. And then on the other side, of course, you know, the people who want to say it's all environment or stuff, but you need a theory that has an animal that can be ready to drink in that environment, learn certain elements, not learn others. So you really need the human nature side of the story to even understand how a person's environment or a population's environment is going to affect them. Okay. Now, a major piece of your puzzle, which um, I noticed I was looking at like reviews of your book yesterday, and a lot of people mentioned this. It seems to me like a fair number of them get it wrong, but you make this long case about uh, cousin marriage and how that when the church, when the Western church starts banning um, sort of second cousins, third cousins, at, at some points it goes even as far as like fourth and fifth. Uh, and then they recede that a little bit. And then also, um, which I didn't know until I read your book, the whole, uh, the fact that when you say sister-in-law or brother-in-law or mother-in-law, it means in canon law. Um, so once you create all these restrictions on um, who people can and cannot marry, then in essence, what this means is that when you want to find a spouse, you need to leave the comfort and security of your home base and the, the networks that you grew up with and go somewhere else where you can find people that you're not like distantly related to. And in doing that, um, your argument is that this has all these profound downstream effects because now um, if you go to a, a new place where you don't have readily established networks, uh, that means you're going to maybe have to learn new language, new customs. You're going to have to be sort of work harder, be more sort of uh, competitive. You're going to have to be special to get, uh, to be able to like survive and make your way in the world when you don't have necessarily all of those ready-made connections and things like that. I mean, is, is that. Is that sort of in very, very broad strokes what you're, are, am I missing a piece of that? Yeah, I mean that, so you started with cousin marriage and that's certainly one element in the puzzle, but the church is also ending arranged marriages and altering inheritance customs, uh, ending polygyny, all of which have the same effect which is to break down these kin-based intensive kinship networks 
that, you know, I take care of people while people get their personal identity. It takes care of their old age security. It's their security if they're injured. It ties them to the land because your ancestors are important in clan societies. So your your the land is literally sacred because it's where your ancestors are buried. And it breaks families down into these monogamous nuclear families. And so in order to find a mate that you're not closely related to uh, and you can't rely on arranged marriages or things like that, this begins to stretch out the ties. And a lot of people are interested in social networks now. So you can think of it as rewiring the social networks at a, at a fundamental level. And in this new world, you're not gonna be relying on your existing social ties to, to figure out who to trust and who to marry. You're gonna be relying on, on cultivating a unique self. So something that you could sell in the marketplace for, for good friends and also for mates and business partners and all those kinds of things. Yeah, and, and this, uh, you know, the also this would, Effect, you know, they talk about the strength of weak ties, and I, I hear that from my students all the time. And that very often, the the person who gets you a job is is usually not somebody that you're very close to. It's somebody that you you know, um, you know, at at some remove, right? And so, if mm-hmm. there's a focus on uh, developing those weak ties and making yourself attractive to people who are not, you know directly connected to you that uh, you'll be really you'll be able to survive in that but what happens to people who are um this is something you do obviously talk about in your book but i I wanted to kind of stress this uh, get you to talk about it is what happens to people in this new uh, global interconnected multicultural world what happens to people who are extremely non-weird who are still very clannish, who are still very connected to particular places and, and still have, um, is, is there a place for people like that in, in this modern, okay, increasingly, you know, these big cities we have that are just like, a, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, you, you can still use that system, the, the system of relying on this networks of kin ties. So for example, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of literature on migrant populations coming in from societies with more intensive kinship. And they often do really well in starting small businesses because they can rely on a network of relatives and cousins to staff their businesses. They have high levels of trust so they don't have to have formal contracts. Uh, and, and then they can rely on a, uh, you know, an ethnic network or some other kind of network to provide customers, people they share interests with, languages. So it kind of provides a way to operate in contemporary economic world and contemporary economic systems without adapting all the kind of impersonal prosociality and individualism that I talk about. Now, of course, immigrants have eventually, you know, be, become indistinguishable from the majority culture psychologically, but that can take a few generations of enculturation and learning. So yeah, so there, there does seem to be a place for that and it helps us understand some of the phenomena we see amongst populations as people move around. Yeah, you give a, a wonderful example of this in, um, in, in the secret our success, the Chaldeans in Detroit, and how these these Christians from northern Iraq, who uh, and they, you know how they they have all of these, and it did it did make me think that it seems like there is this um, sweet spot, you know, where kind of the best of all possible worlds, which is if you are living in a predominantly weird society, but you yourself happen to be a member of a that's sort of a semi, semi non-weird uh, minority group, whether it be the Chaldeans or the Mormons or, um, or you know, Jews or uh, 
Hindu, South Asians, Han Chinese. Like, if you're a member of a tightly knit minority group that in many ways is um, definitely shows preference to to members of your group and has, so you, you have like the, the benefits of good government and markets that work and fairly impartial courts and impartial law enforcement. So you have all the benefits of those things. Uh, but then you also have a lot of the sort of godfathery type benefits of having um, a tightly knit community. Uh, but of course, what what is what is right through your work, like Max Faber's, is that this is all temporary because <laughs> eventually, like with assimilation, eventually, if uh, if the, that minority group, if they assimilate more and more and start through intermarriage with the majority population, then they lose those advantages. Right. right. Yeah. No. And in fact, one of the interesting places you see that, uh, and so this is work of Paolo Giuliana and uh, Alberto Alicina, two economists, and they've looked at the happiness, uh, the effects of happiness. And so one robust finding is that happiness goes up kind of logarithmically with income. So, uh, you know, as you make more and more money, you've got to make even more money to increase by the same happiness increment. But independent of that, having strong family ties seems to add to people's happiness. This means that the best place in terms of your interest, if you're interested in happiness, would be to be in a, in a wealthy society, but have strong family ties. Yeah. I mean, to, to what extent, and I don't want to push too hard on this, but to what extent is this maybe a little manifestation of the free rider principle that that um, minority minority groups within weird societies can to some extent uh, free ride on the weird norms uh, while not maybe paying the full price of uh, do you know what i mean like a yeah, sure. No, it does. It does have that kind of uh, free rider dynamic where in some ways we'd all rather be happier. So we should all build strong ties and be highly nepotistic and all that kind of thing. Uh, although there are other incentives in the system that push the other way. So, uh, you know, there, if you want to uh, have a large company instead of a small company, you've got to begin to trust strangers and take advantage of bureaucracy and all those kinds of things instead of relying on your network of close ties and, and high trust. Uh, yeah. So there are there are dynamics that push against that as well. And so, and this is you say very clearly, and I know this is, I, I've seen. There's some people who think that this is that your argument is uh, a kind of a stopping horse for some Western triumphalism. That uh, this is you know ultimately, which I, I think is a, is a misreading. But you do stress that you can have something that ends up functioning a whole lot like a Protestant work ethic in populations that are not Protestant, right? That you can have, you can get to, to a number of, that weird psychology uh, is not, doesn't have to necessarily come from a Western source. That's correct, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, that's what you're, you know, you picked out the one key element, which we seem to have data on is, uh, you know, uh, you see there is the general trend that weird people have more temporal discounting. So they're willing to defer gratification into the future more than other populations. They have more concern. They get more sort of, they get more joy or utility out of uh, hard work, but there are lots of other, there's lots of exceptional populations. So uh, Han Chinese populations, Jews, uh, all seem to also have a strong work ethic from an independent 
cultural evolutionary source. Uh, so, yeah. and, and that's true of other dimensions too. So, I mean, uh, there are small scale societies that are organized in very individualistic ways. They just don't have some of the other elements of weird psychology. Okay, so that, that would explain. And the first time I encountered this, this idea, or at least that I remember, was it was in a book by uh, Robert Kaplan, and it was called um, Empire in the Wilderness. And he, he's, he made his name as a, a travel writer. So he decided at a certain point to sort of turn his, uh, his lens on his own home country, on the United States. And, and he, went into, he went into this whole really interesting conversation about how, uh, as, a, as an American Jew, he obviously was very, very happy that anti-Semitism was you know, just a, a shadow of its former self in the United States, that there was much more of acceptance and much more intermarriage and people, he said, this is all great. But he said, you know, one of the downsides of this is that um, the, a lot of what makes um, certain minority groups really successful is the sense of being under threat all the time. Mm -hmm. And he said that the less, <laughs> he said the less that we're under threat, uh, I feel like we're going to, uh, in, in the aggregate, we're going to be, kind of less uh, successful and less like sort of overachievers. And he said, increasingly, I think the Protestant work ethic is best manifested in the United States. And he, he I think he lives in Brookline right now, actually. But anyway, um, he said it's, it's best represented by um, Hindu South Asian immigrants or Han Chinese or Vietnamese or Arab immigrants. They're the ones who are starting all the new businesses now and, Yep. you know, kicking ass in different ways. So, I mean, is that, how do you, how do you sort of make sense of that? Uh, yeah. So, well, so first, let me kind of get back into that by, I just want to address the Western triumphalism thing. I mean, I, I, when people say that they've really missed kind of the main point of the book, or at least one of the main points of the book is kind of to undermine those views. So one of the things I do at the end is I kind of say, look, it wasn't, there was nothing special about what the enlightenment thinkers came up with. This was a kind of an emerging psychology that had been developing for 600, 700 years. And once you have this way of thinking, you're gonna to tend to think in these patterned ways. And this is just the kind of result of the weird psychology trickling up to the kind of intellectuals and elites of the day. Uh, so it really undermines it in that sense. And it also traces, uh, this this view to uh, a kind of set of religious prohibitions and taboos, which kind of pop up almost randomly, kind of the one particular set of religious mutations that then spread and have all these downstream consequences. So you're not not based on far uh, anything far seeing, and the data in the book actually ends any notion of uh, sort of an essential European character, right? Because I compare regions within the same country. So for example, at one point I analyze Italy and I show how you can explain the variation amongst Italian provinces by knowing something about the history of cousin marriage and the presence of the Catholic church and stuff just within Italy. And you can do that other places as well. So it's really anti-essentialists. Uh, it's not you know a bunch of brilliant guys figuring everything out. So it really undermines the basic tenets of any kind of triumphalism. I always have trouble figuring out how people get to that view right after reading my book. Actually. I think it's this. I think it's a, a result of um, this, this is my theory, just from teaching on the book. I think it's yeah. the skim reading. I think if if uh, the, the students who sort of just would skim read things quickly before discussion, 
they were the ones who were most like none of the students, regardless of their politics or their background or their uh, who actually read it, uh, came to that conclusion. So I think it's you know a lot of reviewers. Um, this is just a, a structural problem in our intellectual life in the 21st century. But you know, reviewers used to be you know not even long ago. I mean, I'm 46. I I remember in the 1990s, most reviews were. Even if you disagreed with their take on the book, they were really good. I mean, they really <laughs> kind of clearly like uh, read the book very carefully. Uh, perhaps you know read some surrounding uh, literature to have a better idea of what they're dealing with. And it was, but now increasingly people just uh, skim read something and decide, okay, where can I fit this into the culture war? You know, well, this draw, friend, well, John, if I could, if I could exact an explanation of this, okay? Because yeah, I think I, I sure. think I know where this comes from. Uh, Joe, by the way, it's a great honor to be on a podcast with you, and I've read both of your books, and I'm a big fan. And as you say, they are very much of a piece. But what I wanted to say about the Western triumphalism business is this: if you read the Weird Book, you are very likely deeply immersed in that psychology yourself. All right. So essentially what you're reading is you're reading a book that says, how did people become more like me? And most people psychologically will regard any book like that as a sort of triumphalist book, because the more like me you are psychologically, the better. And I think that this book in particular lends itself to that kind of naturally egoistic interpretation. And I think it may be that more than anything else. Yeah, I think that's right. And because one of the things I, I try to bring out in the book, I don't know if it comes through clearly, but that, you know, because of the way our psychology and values co-evolve with our institutions, we're going to tend to think that things like uh, liking hard work or analytic thinking or individualism are good because those are the things that lead to success within a particular institutional context. Now, if you take a different set of institutions, those traits can be disastrous. And so you would think of them as bad. So in lots of societies, being a conformist is good, not bad. But if you say someone's a conformist in Western societies, that's often, uh, that's not often not a nice thing. They want, you want them to be independent minded. Right. And there's some interesting research on that. But I, I, the thing is, I tried to, to kind of show that in the very first chapter where I would reframe things. So there's a whole section called Weird People Are Bad Friends. And, and that's when <laughs> people that. <laughs> are, you know, you're put in a passenger's dilemma and your friend is driving recklessly and you can either be loyal to your friend or tell the truth in court. Right. And so those are both virtues. Right. And some people come down on the side of help your friend and some people come down on the side of tell the truth in court. Now, which side you come down on as a society is going to tend to make your judicial institutions function more or less well. Um, but if you have different judicial institutions, then it's a whole different ballgame. And, and there is that virtue, right? We still care about friends. There's a section called uh, missing the trees through the forest or something, or just missing the trees. And it emphasizes that the emphasis on analytic thinking means you tend to focus on singular elements and assign properties to them rather than looking at all the relationships. So it's a critique. It's, it's saying, look, we need both holistic thinkers and analytic thinkers. Uh, and you know, analytic thinking has its virtues, but it also has its vices. So I, I tried hard to keep you know, turning the, putting, you know, putting the mirror to the reader, uh, but I guess that didn't always come through.
it's very well, difficult. Yeah, yeah it's, it's difficult for it to come through. Actually, this, this brings me to another point that I wanted to raise, which uh, Cousin Marriage, I think, was a great illustration of that. Now, I thought that was one of the best laid out parts of, uh, of the Weird Book. And what was particularly striking was the chart you did of all the various church prohibitions from, I don't know, about the year 400 up until about the year 1500. And what's striking about that chart, or at least was to me, is the degree to which cousin marriage, the degree to which the prohibitions became more and more rigorous, okay, to the point where you had fifth and sixth cousins not being permitted to marry. And I don't know how many generations of cousins you have to go through before you can't marry anyone at all, but it can't be more than about 20 or 30, right? There are only so many ancestral blocks that you could fill in there. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, after that, those prohibitions became more and more lax to the point now where the Roman Catholic Church, I believe, prohibits marriage only with uh, first cousins. It's even uh, it's even okay with them to marry your second cousins. And I was wondering uh, if, in general, cultural taboos tend to exhibit that kind of pattern where they become more and more rigorous and then they become lax. And I was wondering how that squared with your thesis and how you might explain a pattern like that. Yeah, well, I think, well, the story that the historians, or at least some historians tell on the relaxation is that elites began to use that, that going out to six cousins as a kind of weapon against each other, because then they could claim that other elites had married their cousins and try to delegitimize them or delegitimize the children who the successor. So the, the church backed off to a point in which they think they, they figured they could track it to that distance and have some actual evidence to that point. Now, one of the things that happens, so as it changes societies and you get a society more based on voluntary institutions, more urbanized with people moving around, there's kind of less of a need for the, for the cousins because people are, you know, society's restructured itself. So, you know, Protestantism actually doesn't care about cousin marriage at all. And you do see a resurgence of some amount of cousin marriage after Protestantism begins to spread because it's not tabooed by that particular religion. But by this point, urbanization has taken off and it's just hard for too much cousin marriage to get going at that point it, because the society has restructured itself along different lines. Yeah, I, I was amazed in, with my classes. I actually asked them, um, how many of you know somebody who's married to a to a, a cousin, to a first cousin or second cousin? And it was it, it exactly mapped to what you lay out in the book. Like my, I, and it was very shocking to a lot of the students who didn't come from that experience. Like a lot of the South Asian students mm. and Filipino students, to a lesser extent, uh, some some uh, uh, students who recent immigrants from Southeast Asia and from Africa who, uh, depending upon the place, you know, they would say, oh, I know, you know, lots of people that are, you know, whereas like from other places, they not only didn't know anybody, they, it sounded to them like, oh yeah, there's a place in the world where people still, I don't know, eat cats or something. I just, it just seemed very, very exotic to them to be married to a cousin. So that's, I think that's right. a and, huge blind spot a lot of people have. And that gets to the value system. So if you, if you talk about the disappearance of cousin marriage, the people, uh, 
you know, who are raised in the Western tradition will think, oh, that's a good thing. But if you're raised in a different tradition, you're like, well, why don't you love your cousins? They're members of your family and they tighten your family networks. And, you know, there's all these benefits, right? Uh, so it, again, that just depends on the structure of the institutions locally. Yeah, there's a um, question, Aaron, I know Aaron mentioned this, um, just about how you how you square this sort of the recent evidence. I mean, there's a book, a blueprint. I, I sent you a message about this a couple months ago, I think, but how that not, not uh, Nicholas Christakis's book blueprint. It's another book with the same name that just came out, which is. Uh, Plowman's Plowman's book. Plowman's book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he was on Sam Harris's podcast and he's made a lot of waves with that. And, and so you get two very, very different messages, right? On the one hand, he says, um, more and more stuff that we thought was uh, was environmental turns out to be very very powerfully predicted by genetics and you know, things like schizophrenia and stuff like that. So, I mean, how do you how do you respond to to data like that or to arguments like that? Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's much of a problem. Uh, his analyses are all variation among individuals within a society. Or within a population, he's not trying to explain, you know, the different norms and institutions of different societies, or the di- the different psychologies across those populations. So you, you can't even really get at that with behavioral genetics. One of my students, Michael Muthu Krishna, has a paper. Uh, it's I think it's not published yet, but it's called the Cultural Evolution of Genetic Heritability. And what he shows is that if you have a trait that's valued, like say, say IQ, something, something that leads to success within a particular set of institutions, right? So, so the argument that Michael and I have already, we already have in print is that IQ is something that leads to success if you have meritocratic institutions that value analytic thinking. So it's a sort of a set of cognitive abilities for which the environment will be increasingly structured to promote those cognitive abilities because they give uh, rise to the success in, in these institutions. And you know, there's lots of other traits you could pick out as well. And that what cultural evolution will do is it'll gradually squeeze out all of the non-genetic variants. So heritability that Plowman talks about is it's a fraction. And on the top is the additive genetic variation. And on the bottom is the total phenotypic variation. The phenotypic variation has two parts, the additive genetic variation and uh, all the other environmental stuff. And what culture does is it squeezes out, it shrinks the environmental term, which inflates the size of the, of the heritability estimate. So one of the misperceptions that people think is that you're measuring something fundamental about the genome. And what you're measuring is something uh, about the population, including how good the population is at squeezing out the environmental variants. So if you say something like reading, in an environment where there's not plentiful books in schools, you know, you're going to have a lot of variation in reading that's due to whether your family has books, whether you know someone who can teach you how to read. Uh, but once you begin teaching everyone to read and you develop all kinds of techniques to deal with different kinds of learners, you squeeze out that environmental variation and you get all the variation you have left is the genetic variation. So it looks like heritability is higher. It is high in that population, but it's not a feature of humans. It's a feature of the fact that you've squeezed out all the other variation. Okay. Aaron, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I think there's another illustration that makes uh, that makes Joe's point even clearer, which is to say people think of height as having a certain absolute uh, heritability, but of course it does not. Uh, height has differing heritabilities depending on whether you're in an environment like the West now, in which basically everybody gets enough to eat, 
and, or if you're in some other environment where a lot of people starve. Obviously, if a lot of people starve, what happens is that they don't grow to full height. And as a consequence, the heritability of height is going to be uh, much lower than it would be in the West. Okay. So I think if you look at it in physical terms, it becomes clear that, you know, you're squeezing out the, uh, you're, you're, you're squeezing out certain aspects of the environment. You put everybody in the same environment and heritability obviously becomes much higher, both for physical and psychological traits. So yeah, I, I agree to that point. Now, one thing I would say is that I would expect if culture were as profound an influence as uh, Joe maintains in his two books, I would expect different genetic populations when they immigrate to a weird country like the United States to, at least after a few generations, have these variances washed out, right? And be more or less the same. Yet we do see different ethnicities have radically different experiences in different populations in, in, in weird countries when they immigrate. And this is true even after the first couple of generations. And I guess what I'd like to ask Joe as a follow-up is how he would square that sort of data with his thesis. Well, so in, unless we, well, so, I mean, it's an open question as to how we could explain that, but uh, certainly there's lots of norms that still vary within, you know, say the U.S. or something like that. Sure. Uh, so, you know, people like Dick Nesbitt, who have written about the success of Jewish populations, have made the case that this is due to uh, dinner table conversations, an emphasis on education, an emphasis on literacy that goes, you know, I, uh, I mentioned this in the footnotes in my book, but uh, Jewish males started becoming literate after the destruction of the Second Temple, when Judaism transforms uh, from a temple-based religion into a book-based religion. So every male has to learn to read the Torah for themselves. This makes the men uh, highly literate. And, you know, there's long-term cultural evolutionary consequences to that. Uh, so, so that's a, the case where a, a particular population maintains a set of norms that may have big downstream consequences for how you score on cognitive tests, for example. But that, but, but that particular population changed rather dramatically in a, you know, in terms of genetic, uh, genetic time, in a short amount of time. So if you, if you look at Aaron and I were talking about this the other day um, on the phone. The, if you look at what what Jews were doing in, you know, times of Caesar, right, right, Roman times, they were. Uh, they were um, butchers. They were the equivalent of like uh, bouncers. They were thugs. They they did a lot of uh, very rough manual labor. Um, they would be you know, assassins. They would be they. That was the sort of niche that they occupied in in a lot of the the Roman world. And then you sort of fast forward uh, not that far. Uh, and you have all this because of anti-Semitism and restricting Jews to certain trades and pogroms and selective. So through various things, this population uh, looks very different so that when more or less by accident, when literacy suddenly becomes a very profitable asset because of uh, you know, the rise of uh, industrialized society and you know, all sorts of reasons that suddenly Jews happen to be very well placed 
more or less by accident to benefit from these changes. And so now they're, they're very bookish and, you know, I, that, that's a huge change very fast. Yeah. So although I, I like this book, uh, so this were out of my expertise now, but I do like this book called The Chosen Few. And in The Chosen Few, it makes the case that the transition for Jews occurred, say, in the, you know, the first five centuries, you know, after the destruction of the Second Temple over the next few centuries uh, from a far, primary farmland population because of this literacy that get, they gained because of religious uh, requirements into a more urban cosmopolitan population. And this occurred, you know, kind of in the Islamic world. Uh, and then, you know, Europe and the pilgrims are actually a later part of the story, but they'd already become an urbanized literate population by that point. That's at least what these, the, the chosen few scholars make the case. What, what do you, you have anything to add to that, Aaron? Well, I think the, uh, <laughs> the modern Jews were done a, a great favor, in my opinion, by their historical predecessors not being allowed in most of Europe and most of the Middle East to own land, which essentially forced them into certain trades like, you know, usury and, uh, you know, various kinds of merchandising, which developed skills that are much more consonant with the modern weird societies that Joe was talking about. So I don't think it's just the destruction of the, of the Second Temple, and I don't think it's just the bookish traditions that developed as a consequence. I think that there were actual legal prohibitions that in the long term benefited the Jews in that respect. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's I can't remember if it's in your book or it's in, no, I think it's in Nicholas Christakis's book, Blueprint, where he talks about how if you have selective pressures on a population of, of plants or animals, like let's say if it, it could be anything, it could be like bass that you're fishing if, or, or deer, if you selectively are only hunting the males of a species or males that look a certain, you know, certain way because they make a better trophy or they, you know, whatever, or only females of a certain kind, that you can actually, in a, in a remarkably small amount of time, you can change the uh, the general characteristics of that population, right? And this one example, I think uh, this is in Japan, where there's this particular story about a whole boatload of um, samurais and people who were like thrown in this body of water and like drowned and killed. And so they they believe that in this bay, if you catch certain kinds of shellfish. Um, they may have like the spirits of these slain uh, warriors on them, and so and they'll have a face. So anytime when they're they're collecting these shellfish, whenever they find a shellfish that looks uh, somewhat like a human face, they throw it back immediately because it's taboo to to eat those. But because they've been selectively um, choosing those ones to survive. Um, the shellfish that have the, this random, you know, whatever mutation that makes some, I mean, it's meaningless to the shellfish, but like they, that have this, they have, this has come to be a dominant characteristic of this local population of this shellfish in the bay. So I'm wondering if, if we do that to humans by, um, you know, by having, like, you know, if you think about the really horrible examples of this, things like, you know, what uh, Genghis Khan would do and that where they would go into these areas and 
uh, what is now like Russia and Ukraine and stuff like that. And they were in every village, they would say, give us your 10 biggest young men uh, and your 10 most beautiful women. Right. And the 10 uh, biggest uh, men would be beheaded immediately. And then the 10 most uh, beautiful women would be taken into some kind of sex slavery or something. And that by doing that over an extended period of time, they, I think this is in like who we are and where we, how we got here. Oh, you're thinking of uh, you, book? Yeah, exactly. Where he, he says that this can actually change the average height in a population um, pretty quickly, right? So I, if I understand you correctly, Aaron, you're, you're making the case that this could have happened to some populations like Jews quite rapidly. Yeah, I, I, well, I, there was also a, uh, there were, there were genetic bottlenecks and other aspects. But the Jews are kind of off the main topic, but I, I just want to point out that, uh, you know, the, uh, a lot of the, the Jews, I think, are very different genetically today from the way they were 2000 years ago. Culturally, yes, but genetically, I think as well. I don't think we much resemble the Jews of Roman times. In fact, what was my joke to you, John? Okay. The Jews of Roman times weren't really the Jews of modern times. Okay. The Jews of Roman times were the Greeks, in fact, because the Greeks at that time <laughs> so exhibited, exhibited most of the characteristics that, uh, that, that are often associated with, uh, with Jews in, uh, with Jews in weird populations today. Yeah. Okay. I, I have two more. I wanted to make sure I squeeze these in. Two more really good uh, questions that I had. These actually come from students who are reading your book. Um, so the first one is, uh, if two identical twins were separated at birth, one being brought up in a very weird society and the other being raised um, in a very non-weird place, would their brains be dramatically and demonstrably different at age 18? And if so, how so? Well, <clears throat> I mean, we have good reason to think that the brain is very responsive to the kinds of environments that we grow up in. So I, I open the book with uh, the example of reading. So if you learn to read in one society and you don't learn to read in the other, things like the thickness of your corpus callosum will vary and there'll be specialized circuitry in your left ventral hemisphere. Uh, you'll be right biased in facial processing for the, for the person who learns to read. So even though you're genetically identical, uh, you end up with a different brain. Whereas in, in another society where you do hunting and gathering, you get better uh, olfactory abilities. You might have better visual recognition of patterns. Um, you know, it all depends on what the demands are, the kind of world that you then grow up in and what, what kind of, what are the values that you, you know, what leads to social status essentially, because people will pursue social status and they'll cultivate those traits that lead to that. And, and, you know, we, we have to stop being dualists. Anytime you do that, it's going to result in, in changes to the brain. Okay. And this is a follow-up question from the same student said, this is with reference because she had, uh, this is a very, very bright student actually, but she had in another class had read uh, Robert Plowman's new book, uh, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And she says, uh, Robert uh, Plowman seems to argue that if we separated identical twins at birth and raised them in widely divergent cultures, they would nevertheless end up being remarkably similar at 18. Um, if Plowman is wrong, how and why is he wrong? Isn't that the same question, John? 
it's a well it's it's particular she's it's her saying that um Sure. How is Plowman getting well, this wrong? Can they yeah, can so, she, sort of have a, a Hegelian synthesis of Henrik and, and Plowman? So she uh, can have a synthesis, which is that all of uh, Plowman's data is based on these studies in weird societies uh, in which they have twins separated at birth, say, that are raised in two middle-class families, right? So he, there's no case, that he has no data that where we take twins and we raise one in, in the Congo basin amongst the Aturi foragers, and we raise another twin, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, in north of Philadelphia. Uh, it's just the experiment's never been done. We don't have data on that. He, he has no ability to make that inference. Okay. And the, uh, the last question, this is sort of, um, I, a common misperception, we talked about the Western triumphalism one, and I think that is just, based on a, a straight up misreading or skim reading, but there is one misperception that uh, a number of my students and, and friends have come to you about your book, which is that they come to the end of it and they say, okay, well, if, if I think of the most weird person that I know or the most weird people in my culture or that I, you know, that I'm friends with on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, they think that like a very, very progressive like very woke far left person, they think that, uh, well, this is sort of the prime example of somebody who has taken weird psychology to its, to its logical conclusion. And when I, I brought this up to you in a, a message, I guess it was a, about a month ago, you said, um, no, that's, that's, that's not really quite right. That if you want to think about a quintessentially weird person, uh, you wouldn't think of like an uber woke person. It would be Steven Pinker. <laughs> Can you sort of just say uh, that? Yeah, yeah. So, incredibly so, provocative statements. So yeah. Uh, so the core, the core of uh, you know. So if you take some of the weird traits, one is individualism, which means you judge people by their what you believe to be their inherent dispositions, their attributes, their mental states. Right. You don't judge them based on their 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 essentialized group membership. So in other words, you don't judge them by their ethnicity, you don't judge them by their racial group, um, you don't judge them by their sex. Uh, so, so what I see uh, the woke end of the spectrum doing is returning to these essentialized groups where if you want to know something about someone, you got to know the race and their gender and you know the history of their ethno-linguistic group, which is very different from an individualism base where we're going to evaluate this person not based on what his parents did or his grandparents did or what people in his group did a long time ago, but what is this person standing in front of me right now? What are his dispositions and attributes? Okay, so, but do you think that the, I guess the combined forces of a, a resurgent populist right, which is very much, of course, um, concerned with people's origins and identity, you know, by, yeah. um, usually mythical <laughs> origins, but and, yeah. and then on the on the far left, the kind of the very woke people also um, championing a kind of resurgent identity politics. Uh, do you think weird societies are are on the way out? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the lesson of history is that you know societies uh, rise, they flourish, and then eventually they vanish. So it's definitely the case that weird societies are on the on the way out. It's just a question of time scale, right? Uh, how, how far in the future is that going to happen, and how much impact are they going to have on the next societies? The thing is, the kind of essentialism that you see on both the far left and far right 
you know, it's easy to be essentialist. It's easy to think in groups. What's hard to do is think as in to focus on individuals and not try to always use stereotypes, categories, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so individualism is very much a push against that, evaluating people just based on them now, as opposed to the history, their parents, their lineage, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And what do you, I mean, one thing that you touch on in both books a great deal, and it, it, it's kind of the thing that I always wanted to hear more about. And I was wondering on innovation and the whole idea that we create these collective brains and that, you know, the, our idea of the solitary genius is mistaken in a number of different ways. I wonder, you mentioned that you're working on something on a much more extended treatment of innovation. I was wondering if you just let us peek under the hood a little bit and tell us like where you're going with that project. Yeah. So, uh, the, I mean, the, the main thing that I'm working on now is looking at innovation in the U S and trying to take advantage of, uh, historical patent data sets. And so the idea here is that we, we can use historical U S census data to take an estimate of the amount of cognitive diversity across U.S. counties going back to 1790. And then the cognitive diversity, we can, we can get an estimate by using last names, by the idea that last name is kind of a container. It, it says something about what you know because you learn stuff from your family and parents or from, the, from your place of origin. So the last names can sometimes distinguish place of origin. And that counties with greater cognitive diversity as captured by the last names should produce more patents. And we can analyze this longitudinally. So we can look at the same county as it changes through time. And we can also get interesting exogenous variation. So to establish causality, we need some outside shock to change this. And we have immigration shocks coming in from Europe and other places in the world. And one of the strong findings I think coming out of economics now is that uh, immigration leads to greater innovation. So counties that had more immigration have more innovation basically over the entire period of US history. And we think that that's because of greater cognitive diversity. So people are bringing in different ideas from different places, different ways of looking at it. And what really drives innovation is recombination. So when you get people from diverse backgrounds together, they swap ideas, swap points of view, better able to solve problems, and you're more likely to get more patents. Uh, and so, so far, I mean, the results seem pretty strong is that we can link these measures of cognitive diversity to faster rates of innovation and we can get exogenous variation from the immigration and we can still show that it that it holds yeah and this i mean what you're one of the things that you're challenging with this thesis which i just find amazing is the the whole idea that necessity is the mother of invention and you're saying no it's not actually <laughs> you know that very often in human history there has been great great necessity and there was no invention, right? And then other times when it perhaps wasn't uh, it wasn't required very much. So what would you say is the, to, to sort of go with that metaphor, what is the mother of invention? Well, I think that the core process that I'm interested in is the, is the collective brain, so the recombination of ideas. So you have to bring diverse ideas together. Uh, and you know, at least in a society where you get individual credit for, for coming up with new ideas, which, which does help, um, then, you know, it's just a matter of being able to do it. And so, you know, I, some group of people want to be the smartest people in the room, right? They want to be seen that way. And, and the more they're able to get access to diverse ideas, uh, the more new ideas they can come up with and reproduce. So it's, uh, it's about this kind of this, this social butterfly effect that drives innovation. 
Are you measuring diversity and immigration by sheer numbers of immigrants, or are you measuring it by the different places that the immigrants may have come from in a particular county? In other words, if you get a large influx from one particular country in a certain county, does that necessarily map to cognitive diversity as you define it? Well, the one... uh... We have a couple things on that. Mostly we're just using the size of the immigration shock as the exogenous variable. But what we can do is we can, we're using our last name analysis. So we use the last names, distribution of last names in a county to generate a kind of information theoretic measure of um, diversity. But we can also compare last names that are in a more diverse county with the same last names that are in a less diverse county. And we can show that uh, the same last names are more likely to be inventive uh, when they're in a county with more different last names. So in other words, it makes this people with the same last names more productive or more likely to innovate, I guess. So that's yeah. kind of a nice side benefit of the analysis. <laughs> Yeah, the the analogy that kept springing to my mind when I when I when you were going over that was when North America and South America, because of continental, you know, the, the drift when they suddenly got connected, um, and you immediately in almost every ecosystem, the apex predators from North America just kick the shit out of the apex predators from South America, and most of a lot of the flora and fauna of South America was. With with some notable exceptions, was replaced by the flora and fauna from North America, and the explanation uh, is the broad explanation that Jared Diamond and other people use is that because North America had been in contact with the Eurasian continent, and then even to some extent with the African continent, uh, the the animals and plants were just much more fit because they had much bigger. So if you're saying like invention and what we think of as genius uh, is largely a, a like a probability game, but you just the, the bigger the population, the more likely you are to have um, good ideas and the more likely they are to be passed on. Is it, is, is, is it similar to that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it does bear a similarity to that. So the idea is if, if a society is able to have a larger and more inter- interconnected population, they're going to get, they're going to generate fancier tools and technologies. So, I mean, Jared Diamond kind of is onto this, right? So he has this thing about longitude and he points to Eurasia as this place where kind of technological evolution and, and sociocultural evolution went faster than in places like Australia uh, and, and the Americas. And that's the, that's the idea that there's a larger population, more minds are able to produce fancier technology. So when people from Eurasia start meeting people from the Americas, they're carrying different weapons, right? And they're also carrying different germs for something due to the same logic, right? So there's actually a relationship to the pandemic, right? One of the reasons we wanna stop transmission is because you'll get more virulent versions of the virus if it's able to reproduce. Every time it reproduces, that's a chance for a new, more dangerous uh, version of it. So if you just make less virus in the world, you mean you're getting less reproduction, you have less chance for dangerous mutants. Um, So we want to keep the population of viruses small because we don't want to give them the kind of equivalent of the collective brain advantage. Uh, This is, yeah, sorry, go on there. I was just going to say, by the same token, it can happen in reverse if the population becomes too small. Not only do you not innovate, but you 
actually lose some of the technology that you previously had, like the Tasmanian Aborigines, they, the population was simply not large enough. And obviously they had voting at one point because how do you get to Tasmania otherwise? But uh, the population became so small that they, uh, they lost it. They forgot how to do it. Yeah, the, in, the Inuit example you give is even more striking on that, where they they actually had lost all sorts of technology until they uh, until they reconnected the Greenland population, and then they relearned how to make the the better uh, canoes and the better uh, kayaks and you know all that stuff. Like that was wild. I mean, like yeah, and the cool thing about that is that it happened relatively quickly. Uh, so they they get around uh, eighteen twenty. They get encountered by a European explorer who probably brought some pathogens with them, and the pathogens take out some of the elders and some of their uh, you know master craftsmen, and then the rest of the population can't reproduce the kayak, and that leaves them stranded in northern Greenland, and they start losing other technologies, including their three-pronged fishing spear, uh, until there another island, a guy from Baffin Island, finally bumps into them, you know, he's out hunting or something and kind of reconnects that group to the collective brain and they reacquire all this, all the stuff they lost, except in slightly different versions, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Just absolutely amazing, amazing idea. I actually, I sent that section of the book to a number of my, uh, my Inuit friends and former students from up North and they were just blown away by that. Like they didn't, a lot of them didn't know that, like they'd never heard about that in any of their and it's their history. It's the history of their people. And they didn't know about it. But uh, anyway, I, I know we are unfortunately oh, I gotta go. at, the, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for writing these two fantastic books. I can't wait until, um, what do you think the, the next one is going to be coming? You seem to really go for it, like 10 years of book kind of thing. But yeah, it's probably going to be 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Right, thanks, guys. Yeah, well, thank you so much. All right, take care.